earlier this summer, my buddy sent me a picture of a, a CF Fox side bending machine that I built with him about 20 years ago. Uh, I wish he'd have sent me the picture of the handle on the top uh, because uh, it was really interesting, but it got cut out. He sent me a picture of the side and it says the cracker box on it because, uh, I don't know, we were watching Oh Brother Where Art Thou playing hillbilly music and calling each other crackers all the time, uh, which probably wasn't very nice. It's funny, her, when his dad heard us doing that and he got mad at us and and he was probably right anyway um a cf fox side bending machine is a a kind of a jig but really more of a machine that you bend the sides of a guitar on when you're making a guitar you put the side blanks in it that you've hand planed and sanded down to about a tenth of an inch and then you uh soak them in water for a few minutes and sandwich them between a, a couple of pieces of really thin stainless steel and then you uh, crank down on a, a crank on the waist. It has a, a metal pipe that pushes down on the end of a piece of all thread. I built that mechanical part of the machine, and then I took it to him, and then we built the wooden parts of it and the, the light bulbs that power it and the metal rods that heat it. It's a pretty elaborate machine, but it saves a great deal of time, and maybe more importantly than that, it... Yeah, it radically decreases the chance of breaking an expensive side. How they were bent before these machines came into popular use was uh, there'd be a hot pipe that you'd have either a propane torch in or some charcoal, and you just bend it by hand. You would just put the wet wood on it. The hot pipe would um, turn the water into steam. It would express it through the pores of the wood. It would create a certain kind of volatility and plasticity in the wood structure and you would bend it to a form and then put it back down onto your template until you had it right and it was very tactile very personal very human in my last podcast i talked about the slow apprenticeship um that spanish guitar makers would go through and the sort of cultivation that kind of sensitivity to the wood you'd know when that was going to break because you'd bent a lot of interior pieces already before you were trusted to do a side and and i want to tell you by the time you ever got to touch a part of a guitar that anyone saw you had a lot of experience with that materials it was a long and slow apprenticeship though it never happened this friend was scheduled to be my first guitar making mentor though Still, I, I do owe him a lot. I think that ultimately what happened is that he showed me the idea that I could make guitars on my own at home, and that was pretty important and compelling to me. Um, and then he also introduced me to uh, my guitar-making Bible, guitar-making tradition and technology uh, by William Compiano, who's still around and still making great guitars but really my apprenticeship was to that book which is really something that suits me um a book is something you can have a relationship with on your own terms and at your own pace and it just feels better to me to be able to make my mistakes in private to have my own private relationship with um with a text rather than with people not that i'm antisocial or i don't like people i just sometimes um doing that kind of work um, and more accustomed to doing it uh, in private, I guess. 
And though I haven't thought about it very much in my life, my relationship to that kind of handwork is very similar in kinds to my relationship to reading to begin with. My buddy is a lawyer in Vermont, but he did something like a traditional apprenticeship. And I, I often think it would have been cool if I could have done something like that. But, you know, I didn't. I was supposed to, when I defended my dissertation, go and stay with him in Vermont for a couple of weeks and uh, build my first guitar top to bottom and see how an acoustic guitar was constructed with him looking over my shoulder and guiding me and helping me out with that, also using his his shop and equipment, some of which I, you know, as I said, helped him set up. And then uh, that plan got interrupted by, I happened to come by this job in California and I had to move out here and start my career as a professor. And it sidelined my career as a luthier, though I uh, have made a lot of instruments. I, I was thinking through it and totaling them up and... I've made about 25 stringed instruments, uh, several of which I think are professional quality instruments and I'm proud of, and uh, some professional musicians play them. I made a batch of Telecasters that a lot of my family and friends play. I made a batch of acoustic guitars of different kinds. I've made the jazz guitar I play. I, uh, yeah, I'm very uh, happy that people in my life play those instruments. There's something incredibly personal about a musical instrument. I think, you know, that's why people name their guitars. I've got, you know, my main guitar, Floyd. My telly is named after my granddad. Uh, my wife's guitar is named after Eudora Welty, her favorite writer. And uh, you just spend so much time with the thing that you develop an intimate relationship to it. And for me to think about family, friends, people I care about, even people who aren't in my life anymore, who have that reminder of my concern for them um, and that I can help facilitate their development as creative people. That's really incredibly meaningful to me. It's kind of like sending students out into the world um, after you tried to help them learn. Anyone who listens to the podcast knows that I love to make things and that, and that my journey as a craftsman is a really, really important part of my life. Um, people who listen to the podcast also know that I'm kind of obsessed with whales and that I consider them my talismanic animal. And I've had various encounters with live whales that have been meaningful to me in ways that are uh, a little hard to describe without sounding like some crazy Fred Neal song from the 70s. If y'all don't know or don't remember Fred Neal, he wrote that song Everybody's Talking that Harry Nielsen uh, did. It was in the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. It's a great song. I don't like Harry Nielsen, but I love the song and, and I love other versions of it. Um, but anyway, he sort of increasingly started writing songs about dolphins, um, which he was very interested in. I mean, uh, and and uh, stereotypes about folk singers singing about dolphins and rainbows and stuff are, are often built upon Fred Neal's legacy. But he was an interesting guy. He was a mentor to Bob Dylan. He was a mentor to David Crosby. He was a, a stalwart sort of centerpiece of the, um, of the folk scene in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. 
And then he left to do work with dolphins. He figured that was his real calling, and he went and did that. And I think for me it's interesting because when I think about building this side-bending machine and hanging out with my buddy and and when I think about both of us and our and our um, and our attempts to sustain uh, creative life as craftspeople, despite having professions that take a certain amount of study and time to pursue, um, there's often a real struggle to carve out enough time to do that. Um, you are often dealing with your more present dolphins or or whales, rather, for me. And part of what reminds me of all of this, seeing that picture of that side-bending machine. It's a good one, by the way. It's a lot better than the one I use. Um, is that handle? Maybe I'll get him to send me a picture and I'll try to include it in the podcast. But that big piece of all thread that drives the machine and bends the waist of the guitar down needed a pretty robust handle on top of it. And also the all thread is slow. It moves slowly, um, particularly when you're backing it up and you don't need to go slowly. So I put a, a nice T handle on it so that you could spin it quickly. And I, I fabricated it or carved it out of a chunk of wood. I don't even know that I really recognized I was doing this. The top of it was on one side. I passed the rod through a piece of uh, of mild steel. I welded it on there, and then I um, welded the nut on to the top of it, and then I encased it in a piece of uh, of wood that was about an inch and a half thick and about an inch wide, maybe, yeah, about that, and then... I carved down one side, put that T-handle, and then I, you know, I kind of relieved it on the side so that it would be a nice fit in my hand. And I put it on there. I got the other parts of the mechanism assembled. I put it in the workbench, and I stood back, and I looked at it. And, of course, uh, I noticed after I'd completed it that it was a whale. So as I'm finishing a dissertation on Moby Dick and uh, sea literature in general, um, I'm reading deeply into that literature and I'm making <laughs> objects out of my subconscious that look like whales. And it's not surprising. Uh, I was really into that. I lived across the street from the Phillips Library and it was one of the great repositories of log books from whaling captains. Um, and I lived near all of the whaling museums and was able to visit them. Um, I mean, not all of them, but, you know, uh, Salem, New Bedford, Nantucket. Um, you know, and others, and uh, Mystic Seaport, of course. And I'd look through these log books, and along the top, there'd be like a running ledger of whales. And there was a little language for that that included spouts seen, whales lost, whales killed, whales boiled down into oil. And the symbol used for whales lost was a whale tail. You know, we had it, and we watched it disappear beneath the horizon. And it really, that image really resonated with me. I drew whale tails all over everything. And I was thinking of Ahab and his quest to track down the whale and test his theories about his relationship to the cosmos and whatever else is going on with that imagery. 
And I was also thinking about chasing the dissertation and, and what that meant to me. And, and all of that, or at least that's what I thought I was talking about or thinking about at the time. But when I think about it now, I think it has a lot more to do with thinking about guitar making and things like that. That whale tail has become the symbol of my guitar making and many of my guitars, not all, because some of them are just sort of plain working class guitars, but many of them have that whale tail inlaid in them in various places. And my nameplate, my builder's label that I put inside of an acoustic guitar has that vanishing whale tail in there and it seems to represent something that got away and maybe my quote-unquote career as a guitar maker is something that got away or something that I'm chasing but I think maybe more than that it's something that pops up like a whale and then disappears again as part of my subconscious or part of my my not ordinary life I sometimes have some regrets that I didn't choose a craftsman's life and to work in that way and learn a craft and practice it and pursue it. But when I think about it, and when I think about the work it takes to do that, I think I've made some fair quality musical instruments. I mean, some of them are per, are played by professional musicians. I think, I think the Telecaster that I play every day is uh, one of my favorite guitars I've played, but... That's hardly the same thing as serving that apprenticeship, cutting out that kerf lining and bending the lining strips and hand planing everything and developing that kind of sensitivity. That's the work of a lifetime. That's something you never master. People talk about they've mastered something like that. Nobody masters something like that because some builders are better than others. And even the best builders will build guitars that are of differing quality. And they change their relationship to the instruments as they go through time and they go through their careers. Guitars they thought sounded good at one point in their career they think don't sound good anymore. Pepe Romero, who's a great classical guitar player, is known for having um, one of the most magnificent collections of historically significant Spanish guitars. He's also known for having a son who is a really great guitar builder, and having access to that collection has really, really taught Pepe Romero Jr., um, what makes a great guitar. And I read in an interview one time he was saying that when he built his 100th guitar, he felt like he was starting to understand some of the dynamics of guitar making that really um, he could incorporate to make instruments that I guess he would say, I would say, um, are worthy of his father's collection. His father's collection has uh, guitars from some of the most important builders, including um, Antonio de Torres, who sort of invented the modern Spanish guitar in the 19th century, and then some of the early 20th century builders like Santos Hernandez and Ignacio Fleda. Um, so he had the guitars of the great, great Spanish builders, as well as some of the great, um, more contemporary uh, builders. So anyway, uh, the, the point is that 
that after a hundred instruments, Pepe Romero Jr.'s thinking he's making a good guitar. And I think his guitars are exceptional. I mean, they're they're in high demand. People want them and people will pay 15 grand for one or, or more. So they are instruments of exceptional quality, but the kind of work it takes to make them is you sit down and you build a hundred of them over a short period of time, and then you're starting to figure it out. My guitar making, I'm 25 guitars in. I'm not going to make another 25. And frankly, you know, about half of those are electric instruments, which is a whole different ball of wax. I mean, electric instruments are mostly made in factories. I mean, the, the Fender-style guitars I make, like the Telecasters, you know, people are cranking them out on bandsaws and, and, uh, and, you know, giant sanders at a rate of several an hour. And the people who are making them are not luthiers by, by training. They're just people who get a job in a factory. They do a great job. They make an exceptional quality guitar of that kind. Um, and that's sort of more of what I'm shooting for, I guess, as a sort of is a sort of 1950s factory guitar, not, you know, uh, not a 19th century or early 20th century hand-built Spanish guitar, which is a whole different game. I guess what this comes down to is that you serve the apprenticeship to the master that really speaks to you. And while I'm you know, thinking about making things all the time and thinking about what kind of guitars I'm going to to build. Really, that's just me sort of diving into the subconscious. That's the whale tail after it's gone under. The one that's still on the horizon, obviously, is my is my life in academia and particularly in teaching. And sitting in that library, reading those hundreds of logbooks and going through those ancient texts and reading every book that's listed in the extracts in the opening pages of Moby Dick was a kind of apprenticeship that sawing out those little tie blocks that glue the top of a Spanish guitar on or bending on the hot pipe, the interior um, back lining or splitting the braces by hand, or all that sort of slow apprentice work that I've talked about before, one piece at a time, internalizing that, getting your mind and your body set together on the same task. That was the work of libraries and the work of reading and the work of teaching, and that has become the craft that I'm pursuing and uh, hoping to move towards mastery with, but always understanding that it's never going to be achieved. And as important as this other stuff is to me, and it's really important, I really uh, respect the tradition I'm participating in. I don't think for a minute, because I can successfully knock a couple of pieces of wood together, that I uh, have a kind of rare talent relative to making these instruments. I think it's easy for... um, uh, people who don't build musical instruments to understand an analogy that truly talented players are very rare. And for a builder to make truly exceptional instruments uh, is is equally rare. That person has to come from really inside that tradition. That person has to have that Pepe Romero guitar collection for comparison. 
it takes a lifetime to even approach getting good at something like that. And the tradition demands all kinds of respect and it has a tremendous amount of integrity. And I'm not pretending to be in it. My goal, though, is to just sort of play around the edges of it. And if you are interested in doing something and it seems very impenetrable, I think you can get a book and you can start doing it and you can get into it enough to participate in it and see what it's like and appreciate where the edges of it are without ever, you know, thinking that mastery is possible or even your goal. You can pursue something as a hobby that will bring you a tremendous amount of of joy and can spread that joy to your friends, family, loved ones. Um, and you don't have to become the next Santos Hernandez for that to be rewarding to you. And I think that that's the point that I don't say that you should shoot for being mediocre, but I think that if you expect to become a master of something that you're not putting in the time for, you'll always be disappointed by the outcome. But if you expect to just do some yeoman's work of it and make something that you can you know, be proud of and get a sense of accomplishment from, then you'll probably be able to do that and be happy with it.